Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. That's the title of my message is Bad News with a Bow on It. Bad News with a bow on it. Um, I I wonder if you have uh, ever gotten a gift from someone that felt like when you opened it, like they were trying to tell you something that you didn't want to hear. Or maybe they they thought you didn't want to hear. You were excited about it, you opened it up, and then when you saw it, you're just like, really? Uh, it was, there was a disappointment in it because it said something about you uh, that you did not want to know or don't believe or just uh, frustrated you. It, this was not something you asked for. This was not something on your list. This was not something you were dropping hints about. In fact, it's them who's trying to drop a hint to you that you do not want to receive. Uh, like maybe you opened up a gift and uh, it told you to go in the next room and see your gift. And when you finally did, it was a treadmill right? Or running shoes. And you're just like, wait, what are you, what are you trying to say? They're like, didn't you ask for it? And you're like, no, I didn't. What, are, what are you, what, what's going on, right? And now you're feeling weird and you look down and you've got a plate of cookies in your lap and you're like, what is this about? What are you trying to do right now? And you're feeling weird about it. Um, maybe you open up a box and you're just like, I don't know what this is going to be. And it just ends up being like Listerine mouthwash and like a tongue scraper. And you're like, oh, what's going on here? Uh, what are you trying to, you lean in for a kiss and they're like, that's okay, uh, you know, and you're trying to figure out what they're really trying to tell you. Maybe you open up a, a box and it's like those like uh, sleep well nasal strips and like a, a noise maker, <laughs> you know, or, or maybe they go to the next level and they're like, I got you your own bed <laughs> in the spare room. And you're like, oh, what's going on here? I, I, I got you the gift of a sleep study. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what's, what's happening right now? Maybe they give you hints about other things. You open it up and it's like, a, like an insulting cookbook, you know? Um, and you're like, wait a minute. I do all the cooking. I feel like I know how to cook. And they're like, but do you? <laughs> I just, I thought you might like this. And you're like, I don't like anything about any of these gifts that you got me. By the way, if you already did get your gifts and this is, you got these four gifts for someone, it's not gonna be a Merry Christmas. It's not gonna be great for you or for them. It's gonna get weird. And I think when people do things like this, it's sort of their way of giving us bad news with a bow on it, right? Um, And maybe this happened to you, or maybe it happened to someone in front of you where you got to see the scene unfold. And immediately when that person opened it up and you saw the gift, you knew exactly what they were trying to say to that person because secretly you were like, I have actually thought about saying it to them too, uh, but I'm smarter than they are. And so I would never actually do it, but they are. And that's, that's great for me. And you're just sort of watching what they awkwardly do next because now they've pulled you in the middle of this thing, right? And, you know, the room gets all quiet and everything's all tense and you're waiting to see like the reaction and maybe the recipient says something like, why did you give this to me? And then you wait for the moment of truth. Are they really going to tell them the thing that they want to say in that moment? And of course, you know, if you're in my family, the giver just pretends like, what are you talking about? I don't know. There's nothing, there's no hidden message. And everyone's like, oh, there's a hidden message. It's not so hidden. The recipient looks around the room. Maybe they look over at you and you're just like, oh, 
you're not making eye contact. You're staring at your phone. You're pretending like you don't know what's going on. Or maybe if you're really lucky, a fight erupts and then you videotape it for YouTube. Um, I don't know what, how your family works, but and you, you get to sort of step back and watch as these two people have the uncomfortable conversation that they've been needing to have, but probably been avoiding for a long time. Now, this is a little passive aggressive, right? But we understand a little bit why people do it, even if we would never do this, because it's hard to give bad news. It's hard to give bad news, and so we sometimes try and soften the blow by coupling it with kindness, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it backfires, and it actually makes the situation worse, because it can be really hard to emotionally recover when um, an unexpected gift actually turns out to be an unwanted observation, especially when that observation is about you. And suddenly you realize something that you did not know before. And usually that is not the gift that we are looking for in our lives. It takes a lot of maturity, uh, more than most of us possess, to be able to say, thank you so much for the solution to a problem I am only just now learning I have but will now be insecure about for the rest of my days. That's difficult to do. Most of us can't pivot that quickly. And the reason I bring this up is because this is sort of what the Magi are doing in this story. Every single gift is a statement piece. It is saying something about how they see Jesus. Um, they're, They're talking about who they see him to be and who they see him becoming. And the last gift in particular, says something that nobody wants to hear. Let me just read you what actually happens. This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. The Magi entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Which brings up the big question, what in the world is myrrh? Now, myrrh is actually like a really potent um, but pleasant uh, oil that's extracted from like a small thorny tree, and, um, and then the resin is melted down. And, um, and, and yet, in the ancient world, this is very expensive, very rare, but it really only had three primary purposes, and this is what they were. The first one was calming stomach ulcers. The second was numbing severe pain. And the third was embalming the dead. So just imagine for a moment that you receive this gift and you know full well that really these are the only uses for the gift. What do you do in that moment? Wouldn't part of you be like, why are you giving this to me? (laughs) Actually, better question, why are you giving this to my baby? Like, what, what's, what's happening right now? Like, what are you trying to say? Is it, are you trying to tell me that, like, I should expect to experience a lot of stress in my life? Are you trying to tell me that I should expect a lot of pain in my life? Are you telling me that I should expect maybe a murder plot to be hatched against me? I wonder if like uh, Mary and Joseph, when they like they got the first two gifts and then they opened this one, if they were like, uh, and they, I wonder if they wanted to ask that question. Because you know what the answer is? All three. 
They were saying all three things. What a messed up baby shower gift. Right? Like, if I'm these parents, I'm just like, I mean, you had me excited with the gold, right? When you pulled out that gold brick, I was like, oh, I was so excited. I mean, up, honestly, up until that point, I was a little bit annoyed um, that we were having this baby. Uh, that's not mine, you know, because it's God's. And so, um, but the gold made it better. Frankincense, that was a little weird, but I'm still in because it smells good and it's interesting. Um, but then when you pulled out the medical grade embalming fluid, that's dark, man. I mean, even for you guys, all right? Like, it's not funny. And the message they seem to be sending here is that we are convinced that your baby is going to be a king, that he's probably some sort of priest, and that um, they are definitely going to kill him. And that's a tough thing to hear from a stranger right after you give birth about your baby. Now, we don't know how much the Magi actually knew about who Jesus ultimately was, but they knew enough to label him a revolutionary. Like they were saying with these gifts, like we can tell that this kid is marked for greatness, that he's going to have influence, he's going to make an impact, and he will pay a price for it. And you need to know that now. In pursuit of doing good in this world and for other people on behalf of God, he's going to live and speak in ways that are going to anger and incite anger and incite ridicule and, and violence. So I know you don't want this, but trust us, you're going to need it. And they give this gift to his parents. And I mean, this is a valid gift, as uncomfortable as it may be to receive, because if they believe that this boy is going to grow up to be a revolutionary, revolutionaries didn't do well against Rome. And we know this now for the same reason that they knew this then. Uh, Jesus wasn't the first or only Messiah figure to rise up among the Jews and try and build a different kind of kingdom in the middle of the Roman Empire. And I got to tell you, it didn't end well for any of these people. Two of them are actually mentioned in the book of Acts um, in the New Testament. I'll just read this to you. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 36. Um, it says, there was that fellow, uh, Thudius, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all his father, followers went their own ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too. And all his followers were scattered. Like, let me just give you a little bit of context about these two people and maybe a couple other bonus ones. Like, Theodos, he led all these guerrilla attacks against Rome, and he actually garnered this pretty big following. But then he was captured, and because he had so much support of so many people who were willing to fight and die with him, um, once they captured him, they took him to the public square. They chopped his head off in front of a crowd. They put it on a pole and paraded it throughout Jerusalem as a warning to the people not to rebel against Rome. Judas, the, the, the Galilean, who's also mentioned in the book of Acts, he led a resistance uh, against the census and against the taxes that were imposed by Quirinus. Now, does that name sound familiar to you? If you've heard the Christmas story over and over and over again at the beginning of the book of Luke, Quirinius is the one who requires the census that brings Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in the first place. 
And there is this guy who is telling all of his fellow Jews, because he believes the Roman government is corrupt, he tells them that if they actually comply with the Roman government, because they're evil, they will be sinning against God. And he will, on behalf of God, punish them for it by burning down their houses and stealing all of their cattle, which he did to his own people to help them become more righteous as opposed to become like Rome. And he did this for a good period of time until he was captured and crucified on a hill by Tiberius. There was a guy named Jonathan the priest, and uh, he was uh, a really well-known spiritual leader who was actually elevated to high priest, and he leveraged his position to call out Roman corruption. And he was, he had all these people that supported him and believed that he was going to reform Rome and free the people from oppression until one day he was in the marketplace and he was jumped by several guys who brutally stabbed him to death until he was unrecognizable and left him in the city square. Uh, Later on, it was revealed that the hit was organized by one of his closest friends who was paid off by Felix, the, one of the Roman governors. And then there was Bar Cahoba, who gathered a bunch of support, and they actually thought he was going to be successful um, until he was sort of run off, and he was hiding in this series of caves and tunnels and um, outside of the capital, and 120,000 soldiers descended on the cave where he was, and they massacred him and all of his supporters. And in the, in the Talmud, it actually says of this, of this interaction, the blood seeped into the nostrils of the Roman horses and flowed like a river 40 miles to the sea. Wow. So when they give myrrh to uh, Jesus' mother and father, these are the images that are conjured up in his mom's head about what is going to happen to her son. And these messiahs, they weren't just seen as political rebels, they were seen as divine prophets. And maybe there's a little bit of a disconnect in that today because we aren't run by a theocracy, but like these people were believed to have been chosen by God to act on his behalf and set the world right, which made their demise all the more disappointing to their followers. And maybe you're wondering like, okay, so what is a prophet? Like, what do they actually do? And I want to just clue you in on this because I think it's like this spiritual, churchy, bible word that we throw around and we're just like, I don't know what it is. They have powers. I don't know what, how does it work? And essentially, um, prophets are, are people who really have five particular traits, whether you're looking throughout all of the, the Old Testament into the New Testament or even people now. Um, prophets are people who confront cultural assumptions and challenge the status quo. Like, sure, okay, this is the way that everyone sort of sees things and the way that everyone just sort of does life and we've just all sort of decided that this is normal, but is this really what's best? Is this really the way we want to be? Um, uh, like, there are all sorts of examples of this, but like the prophet um, Haggai in the Old Testament, he told his people like, listen, um, you keep uh, upgrading your houses 
but you have completely forsaken God's house. Like the temple's falling apart. So you're taking care of your family, which is good, but you have completely ignored caring for your community, which is bad. And we've all just sort of accepted that this is okay, but we are rotting our culture out from underneath us. And it's a problem. This thing that we've all just decided is okay is actually not okay. And prophets are people who aren't afraid to do this. Um, prophets predict where cycles of thinking and doing will inevitably end up, right? So um, there's sort of like, you can keep doing this because you can do whatever you want to, you have free will, but this is how that thing on repeat compounded is likely to play out. So if you don't change your actions, this is where this thing is going. But if you do change your actions, you may be able to change our collective outcome. And prophets did this on a regular basis. They were trying to encourage people to take accountability for their story. The third thing that prophets did was uh, prophets, um, well, actually, let me give you an example of this. Uh, New Testament prophet, uh, John the Baptist, um, he told his people to repent and be baptized. It's like the thing that he kept repeating over and over again. And it was just his way of saying, like, you guys are living in a, a really self-destructive way. You need to open your eyes and live differently because what you're doing, the way you're living, is not going to end well for any of us. The third thing they did was uh, prophets operate outside the system because they don't fit in or form to expectations. Like, these people lived off the grid, right? They, um, they a lot, oftentimes, they didn't really have a formal education. They were not sanctioned by the temple or government. They didn't have ordination papers, right? Like, um, you, you didn't, like, you, 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 you didn't find them in the temple, usually. You didn't find them in a, 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 some sort of a system. They sort of played by their own rules. Um, the Old Testament prophet Elijah roamed the countryside. Uh, there's all these stories of him, like, camping out next to streams and hiding out in caves and sort of squatting in a room above the house of one of his supporters. Um, prophets, number four, were ex often eccentric, charismatic, provocative, theatrical, and unpredictable. Like everything they did was different. You, you knew it when you saw a prophet because the way they carried themselves and lived their life and explained ideas, you're like, I have never thought of it that way before. Like what is this? This person talks and does things differently than anybody else I've ever encountered before. And you didn't have to like these people, but it was impossible to ignore them because the way they went about things. And sometimes they're, they're, those who criticize them were like, I get what you're saying, but did you have to do it that way with so much flair? You know, did you have to say it like that? Did you have to tell that story? Did you have to do it that way? And they did. They were really eccentric. Um, the New Testament prophet John the Baptist wore fur loincloths and ate locusts. Um, that's a random detail. We're not told that there's a reason for this. It's just that he did it because he was a weird guy. Ezekiel, that I named my son after, put on these like these elaborate theological, theatrical performances. Uh, one he did famously with uh, burnt human hair and flaming feces as props. It's in there. Go find it. Jeremiah cried so much, people could barely understand what he was saying because he was like crying through the things. Uh, Hosea like married a prostitute that because God, he felt God told him to. And he kept a journal of all the different times she cheated on him and broke his heart because that was his way of sort of illustrating how God feels when we sin. Like I said, eccentric, right? And the last thing is that prophets serve people's practical needs in ways the establishment can't or won't. They would 
you know, comfort and console people. They solved disputes. They fed the hungry. They healed the sick. Um, in, in the Old Testament, again, you have Elijah, who is this prominent prophet, takes up several books, and uh, he prays for rain to suddenly appear on the land after a drought and actually happens, which is insane. He feeds widows and orphans. He publicly challenges kings to do the right thing and helps sort of guide the people. And the Magi, by giving this gift to Jesus, are predicting that he's going to be this type of person. And what's interesting is that they're right. That's exactly who he grows up to be. Jesus challenges uh, religious people and their cultural assumptions. He challenges the status quo. One of the famous lines, he gets in a fight with these uh, Pharisees, and he's just like, listen, you are doing, you think that like, if you just sort of like do all these religious rules, like that you're covered and everything's good, but like basically the way you're living, you're like cleaning the outside of the cup and the dish, but on the inside, it's like rotting and dead because you've never really dealt with your heart. You have hate and bitterness and judgment in you. So you can do all this stuff and it doesn't matter if you don't actually let God in here. He pushed people to see um, the real cause of their actions. Like, listen, if you keep repeating this cycle, do you know where it's going? Like he used to say this phrase all the time, like you've heard it said, but I say, and he's sort of like getting people to connect the dots and understand where modes of, of thinking and being are going, right? He, he has this famous line of telling people like, you know, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. And I agree with that. Um, but also you shouldn't hate. And what's he doing? He's saying, because like if you invite hate into your heart and you sort of cultivate that anger and bitterness, do you know where that leads? Murder, rage, violence, prejudice, like, listen, if you cultivate that, you're going there. It's not enough to draw the line here. You need to go all the way back here and begin to address your heart. He, he told his, his followers um, many times that, you know, I, I don't, like, if you want to follow me, you should just know, like, I'm not sanctioned by the system. So if you need someone that has credentials and degrees or even a place to live, it's not me. He tells them one time, like, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I, I don't have anywhere to go and stay. Like, if you're trying to stay with me, I'm sleeping on the streets, okay? I'm living in the wilderness. I'm off the grid. Like, this is the sort of life that I'm living. He often um, did things in really eccentric ways. There's so many times when Jesus is teaching and he's asked a simple yes or no question. And instead of answering the question, he tells a story that is long and quirky and elaborate with like punchlines in the middle of it. And sometimes, like a lot of times after he tells the story, the, it says the disciples had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> they did not understand what he meant by what he was saying. There's one time where Jesus does this and they're just like, what do you mean? And he says, are you still that stupid? Like he gets annoyed <laughs> that they don't get like his weird communication style, right? Like, because he was, this is the way he operated. And he, he helped people that those in power ignored. Like, he fed crowds. He healed the sick. He even raised the dead. And so if you fast forward and you look at later on in his life, it becomes obvious that there, like, there's no doubt at all that Jesus is a prophet leading a revolution. But of course, Mary and Joseph have no way of knowing all this at the time that the gifts were presented. 
these strangers show up. They give them these gifts that seem to have implications and they have no way of knowing what's going to happen. But it was rumored that, that Magi had the power to sort of predict the future. And their predictions seemed to be anyone destined to be a prophet, a priest, and a king in this cultural environment is going to have to confront a lot of stress and pain and death. So you need to be ready. And while they're still trying to process what just happened and what that means for them, this is the very next thing that happens. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I return to you because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And like instantly as they're wondering, like, I wonder how, I mean, like, we don't met them. Magi, yes, but like, and suddenly he has this dream and he's like, Mary, get up. Grab the myrrh. We got to get out of here. Like at that point, that's the one gift. You're just like, we're going to need this one. They were not joking. This got real, real quick. And what I think is crazy about this is that, you know, when you look at the story of Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph did not sign up for this. They stumbled into it. And whether they liked it or not, whether that's originally what they wanted or not, they were raising a revolutionary. And that was going to come at a cost. And as they all left Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph fleeing with Jesus to Egypt, the Magi beginning the long journey back to their homeland, I, I, I imagine that there was this question that was sort of just bouncing around in their minds. Like, what sort of revolution is this Jesus going to lead? And they would wonder this for a really long time because they wouldn't get an answer until way, way later. Jesus doesn't start his ministry until he's 30 years old. And his revolution ended up being unlike any other. Like instead of slaying his enemies, like most revolutionaries tried to do, Jesus sympathized with his and sacrificed on their behalf. He told his followers to love everyone the way that he loved them. He claimed that the opposition that he came to overcome isn't the politics above us, but the selfishness inside us. And he was convinced that his revolution wouldn't just free people from Roman oppression. It would actually somehow free them from the oppression of sin and shame and ultimately save the world. But being a part of his revolution was going to come at a cost. He once said it to his followers in, in this way, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Because if you try and hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And you know what he's saying? Like, let me just decode this for you in light of Christmas and these gifts. He's saying, if you want to follow the true Messiah, you're going to want to pack yourself some myrrh. Because it's going to be a rocky road. It's not an easy path. So why would you do it? Because ultimately the reward is everything that you're after. 
seeing yourself accurately, becoming more like Christ, finding true fulfillment. But in order to get there, you have to go through the cross. And it's not just the cross Jesus died on. You're going to have to go through the cross that you're destined to carry as well. So what does that mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? I think about it this way. Jesus challenges me to lovingly engage what I most want to avoid. This is what it means to take up your cross. To be challenged to lovingly engage what you most want to avoid. And I wonder what that is for you. Maybe it's a bad habit. Some of us have been struggling with the same habit, tendency, addiction, issue for so long. And we think we're free. And then we're like, no, cross is still laying on my shoulders, still dragging it around. Maybe it's a heart of unforgiveness. Maybe God is nudging you to let go of something and the bitterness is just compounding and growing in your heart. Maybe it's a a strained relationship. Maybe it's a refusal to give or to serve. Here's my question to you. What if, what if someone gifts you something you weren't asking for this season? What if you are given the gift of sudden self-awareness? Like, what if you unwrap an unwanted observation that requires you to act on something that you would rather avoid? Because this is what happened to Jesus and Mary and Joseph. They unwrapped the myrrh and realized, oh man, there's, there's something we're going to have to deal with in order to live out our destiny. I wonder what you will do if and when this happens to you this Christmas. Like, do you ignore it? Do you curse them for their rudeness? You do that. How dare they? Do you make excuses as to why it's not really an issue? It's not that big a deal. Do you continue to live in denial? Or do you take a long, hard look in the mirror? Do you pack some myrrh for the journey? and ask God to help you face yourself. There's one Old Testament wisdom writer that frames this in just a really blunt and interesting way. Proverbs chapter 12, verse one says this, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. (laughs) You love it when the Bible calls you stupid. And essentially what this is saying is like, only idiots get upset when they're given myrrh. It's sort of this wisdom writer's way of saying like, not everyone who gives you myrrh is out to get you. And even if they are, you can still benefit from it. If you leverage it wisely. What is it they're trying to tell you? What is it they're trying to show you? What is it they're 
they have the potential to help you handle. Eventually, somebody's going to hand you some myrrh. What are you going to do with yours? What are you going to do in that moment where someone looks at you and they begrudgingly say to you, like, ah, I wanted to go in on more gold, but they said, no, you got to give that one. When someone asks you to hold out your hands and they're like, here, you're going you're gonna to need this. What do you do in that moment? Because how you respond to the uncomfortable observation about your life that myrrh always presents you with, that response is what determines how Christ-like you become. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, don't worry, you're about to get together with family in just a few days. <laughs> it's coming. And I wonder if instead of becoming angry, frustrated, rolling your eyes, if you sort of accepted the gift and sort of smiled to yourself and looked over at somebody who was at church with you today and were just like, all right, um, so this is my myrrh. Um, I'm going to handle this moment well. And today I wanted just to sort of close out this sermon in this series um, with some more symbolism by taking communion together. Um, there should be a little, little packet on each one of your chairs. And this is sort of this, this ultimate sacred symbol of sacrifice that Jesus did end up needing the myrrh because he did face a lot of stress because of what he was called on to do. He faced a lot of pain and ultimately he stared down his own death and his body was broken and his blood was shed for you and me. That he was the true Messiah, that he was the prophet of prophets, that he was the ultimate priest bringing heaven and earth, human and divine together. And then he encourages us as his followers, like follow in my footsteps, be one who sacrifices for others like I have sacrificially loved you. And so it's with that in mind that I want to encourage you to just sort of think about these things we've talked about as we take these elements together. Would you take the bread with me? Would you drink the juice with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the ultimate example of a king, of a priest, of a prophet, who really genuinely came to change everything, who came to give us life and life to the full, who came to lead us and sacrifice on our behalf and show us the best way to live. And God, I, I pray that whatever we find ourselves in the midst of during this season, whatever inconvenient truths we have to face as we begin to turn the page into a new year, 
as we get a mirror held up to us and we're forced to look at things that maybe we've been avoiding about ourselves. God, may we see the presentation of these moments as the gift it actually is. Not all gifts are we grateful for in the moment, but all gifts that you give us are good. And God, I pray that we would lean into whatever it is you are saying to us through whomever or whatever you use to tell us. And God, may this next year, this new year, be a season in which we grow deeper with you because we are willing to face and surrender more and more of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.